Welcome to episode 18 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. Hi, I'm Jay Jacobs. And I'm Bob Rudis. And you're listening to episode 18 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. And Bob, I wanted to start out today and talk about two papers uh, that are not new. They're actually quite old papers. They're from both from the 80s. And uh, because of our last podcast where we had Lane Harrison uh, giving us, uh, how do we say, feedback on some of the work that you and I did around Verizon's data breach investigations report and our visualizations in there, um, I wanted to dive into these papers and, and talk about what makes a good visualization. So the, the first paper uh, is from William Cleveland and Robert McGill. And the title of this paper is Graphical Perception and Graphical Methods for Analyzing Scientific Data. And this is actually quite well known. It's from 1985 is when it was published. And the reason it's well known is because on, on page four, there's a tiny little table in the upper right in page four of this document. And he talks about, he actually did research to, to find out what visualizations work, work best, right? For, for displaying quantitative information. And that is, you know, numbers and things like that uh, in, in variables. And why this is important, I want to back up here and talk about why this is important. So when we talk about data visualization, this is a communication method. And for anybody who's taken a class in communications, you always start with a message. And in this case, the message is our data. We want to communicate something about that data. So that the data has the message itself. And in a normal communication path, you have to encode a message and then put that message into some type of medium. If you're speaking, you encode it in a language and you send it over the, the airwaves, audio perception. The, the receiver will receive that message and decode it. In other words, listen to the words that you're saying, realize their words, put, word, put meaning to those words and understand the message, the original message. So with data visualization, what we have is, as I mentioned, the message is coming from the data. We need to encode it visually. And when we encode it visually, we have attributes to work with like shape, size, color, position on the, on the page, length, angle, slope, and things like that, that we can use those things to encode the message in the data. And back to Cleveland's paper now, what he did in this paper, Cleveland and McGill, what they did in this paper is that they tested different methods of encoding and the quality and the, the precision with which people decoded the message. And so what's great about this is that he's actually putting these things to a test and running a, a clinical study here of how people decode and interpret different representations of data. And so this table, this tiny little table, it's, there's, it's a three column layout and it's in the third column in the top corner and it has seven different aspects, visual aspects and how they were ranked for people properly decoding them. So the first one is position, and it's position along a common scale. And I always think of a scatter plot here. Uh, and so if you think of, you know, you've got some quantity along an x-axis, 
another quantity going up the y-axis, and you put points in there that represent each individual data point. In order to, to compare these and decode that position uh, into a quantitative number, these are quite precise. People looking at these were quite precise in how they decoded those, those encodings of that data. Uh, the second one is similar, but it's positioned on, on identical, but not aligned scales. So think of two scatter plots next to each other that have the same exact scale, right? And then it drops down for length, which is a very close behind these. And think of a bar chart now where you've got the height of bars or, or length in a, in a horizontal bar chart. Uh, and then after that, it drops down. So now we start talking about angle and slope uh, are in fourth place followed by area and volume and things like that. And this is one of the reasons that pie charts uh, should not, probably not be the first choice for, for visualizing data because it relies on an angle, which is rank number four, and actually has some, some fair distance between the length and, and position three. And it also has area, right? Because you're looking at the area of a pie chart. And this is another reason that a 3D pie chart uh, will often distort the data because it will enhance the area of what's in front. And however you tilt that pie chart, whatever is in back, will have a smaller area. And so the eye will try and interpret area as a variable and, and assign incorrect uh, or unprecise meanings. Um, and Bob, am I missing anything on the pie chart there? Um, I, I think the only thing I would add is that there, there's still always other choices. Um, like I think one that comes to mind would be a, a waffle chart, um, you know, it's basically using a series of blocks. You basically divide, yeah. div, div, you know, divide, divide by a certain number and then, you know, encode things into it. But really the principles, a lot of them that you're describing for the pie charts hold true for waffles. You really can't have too many things there. Otherwise it gets very difficult to read no matter right. how well you encode it or lay it out. It, it's still going to be a problem. Right. And, and waffle charts have been used. Uh, I remember uh, David Spiegelhalter talking about using them to, to convey risk especially in a medical setting. And so he would do things like have a hundred blocks. And if the, the chance of success of some surgery procedure was 85%, for example, he would cover 85 of those blocks and say, you know, each block is, you know, uh, represents 1%. And so 85 of these are colored in 15 have a negative effect or, or bad response or something using that to convey that. And that's what a waffle chart is. And so again, it's the same thing. It's using area, except it's divided up into these uh, evenly spaced squares. Um, and so areas is down on the, on the thing there, but he found that people could easily count and translate these into very precise numbers with waffle chart, but that's not, that's not what Cleveland and McGill were talking about here. Right. Okay. Um, but they still, these are fundamental building blocks. And that's why this paper is so critical when we talk about data visualization. The second paper that I think we should talk about is from uh, McInlay. And uh, McInlay wrote this, I believe, two years later, uh, looking at uh, trying to extend that original work. And uh, rather than just focus on the quantitative encoding, encoding numbers and things like that, he extend this into other types of data. And he, he looked at ordinal data and he looked at nominal or categorical data. And ordinal data is things that are ordered, you know, high, medium, low, first, second, third, things like that, where there's an order to them, but the actual distance between say first and second place is irrelevant. Just the fact that you're in first and the fact that you're in second is what's important. And so when, when encoding something in ordinal, what he found is that uh, position was still uh, high on the top there, but then using color 
color saturation and color hue, we're quite good at this, as opposed to a quantitative scale where, where color saturation and hue were at the bottom of the list. So to encode a quantity, uh, color, color hue and color saturation are really bad. And this is what we see a lot on maps, right? If you're trying to, to do a choropleth, uh, like we did in the beginning of the data breach investigations report, where you have a world map or a US map or something, and you color, say, states in or countries in a certain color trying to convey a quantity, that's a really imprecise way to, de- to encode something. Because when people decode uh, the, the color hue, you know, if it's going from a, a yellow to a red or something like that on this gradual scale, the, the human eye and the brain is very, very poor at decoding that type of message uh, for a quantitative value. But when we talk about an ordinal thing, it's pretty easy if you're just trying to establish order, if you have something that's a, a very bright yellow to a little bit more of an orange going into red, you can tell that there's an order to that. And so this is high up on the ordinal scale. The other thing with a categorical variable, and these are uh, nominal is what it's, it's cited in the paper. And again, position is a great way to determine uh, a nominal difference. Then he has color hue and texture and things like that up on top. And this is what we use a lot, right? Um, and we did this and when we looked at the sub industries uh, in figure 19 in this year's report, uh, where we tried to, we tried to group the sub industries of a, a high level industry. And so they're part of a category. And so to denote that, we used the, uh, we talked about the, the 20 colors from D3, right? The, the D3 20 colors and how we use those categorical colors to represent the category. And so that's up on the top. And so these are two papers. They're, they're very fundamental to data visualization. And that's something I wanted to get out and talk about first here, Bob. Yeah, actually, um, I, I think bringing up both of those two papers is is really fundamental, both both because they they've been around for a while and are kind of seminal works um, in, in the field. Like they've actually influenced many of the different tools that, that people get to use. And you know, I, with, with regard to the Macamay one, I mean, that's that's even now you know, the logic that's inside there is in an application that everyone can use for free, which is Tableau. You, you know, the, and actually that that's a great way to learn a lot of these rules that the paper talks about by actually bringing your data into Tableau. And, and letting it tell you or suggest to you what some of the possible good core visualizations for those things might be, because it understands a lot of these things and, and it, it, it presents that to you. That's one of the strengths, that's one of the reasons why it was actually developed. Um, and I like the other paper also, just because it's not an opinion, right? You know, it's, it, it's not about, you know, percentages of social security numbers, which is an opinion. It's actually based on actual <laughs> real, real data. Um, you know, that, that, that these guys did a study on, got real people, you know, measured things, you know, and we're, and we're able to do some statistics on that to actually understand what some of that is. So it's always great when, when you can base things on, on data instead of pure, you know, analyst conjecture like that. So yeah. um, the, um, but what was interesting when we were, you know, like, like you said, what, what brought some of this up was when we were, when we got schooled by Lane, so we went back to school, but uh, you know, for our, I guess we have on the show today, uh, Brandon Dixon. You know, one of the reasons um, that visualization became really, you know, strong. Yeah, you know, like I think a good topic for the show is that you know, he worked on a visualization for passive total that we'll talk about later. You know, that basically went from looking at just just gobs and gobs of tabular text and IP addresses and dates and numbers and whatever, and took that and and made it into something that was extremely visual that you could determine things right away and gain some significant insight with just you know, a quick look at, at a visualization. And that brought to mind uh, an example from the book, but it's a classic example in data visualization of Anson's Quartet. 
And so real briefly yeah. for listeners, since most people are probably familiar with it, but for the few that aren't, you know, it's basically uh, four sets of XY pairs. And when you look at the statistics of them, right, if you look at the actual, you know, just basic summary statistics of these of these different tables, they actually look very, you know, very much the same. Like you really wouldn't be able to say statistically that there, there was any deviation between them. But when you graph the XY pairs into four separate graphs, you, you get to see a whole new different thing, right? Everything, you know, you've got one that shows up as a curve, one that shows up as a straight line, one that's got an outlier. I mean, it's been, they're basically, you know, drastically different. And I think it was a great example that Anscombe put together to show the importance of, and the equal importance of, now the one is more important, of doing both a statistical analysis and also a visual analysis of the data that you have when, when you're about to do exploratory stuff and kind of, you know, kind of go, go forth and find other questions to ask and answer from the data. Um, and it just, yeah. you, know, that, that, you know, it's, he's like a modern day, you know, InfoSec Anscombe, and, and <laughs> as, as I think folks will learn. Um, but, but the other thing is when we, we were setting up talking about, you know, doing a show on just visualization, uh, that there was a, an interesting paper um, from uh, coming up and it's going to be in, in, in use R. It's about a new package called Braille R. Oh, and, I heard about that. Yeah. That's yeah, very and, exciting. And, and it's really interesting because what what it is is it's actually developed by a blind statistician, and it's it's a it's it's like a blind visualization package, which is a weird thing to sort of say. But right now it works with many of the base plot and you know the in, in R the the base plot base plot routines in R, and it lets you say you know make a histogram just like you would normally make a histogram. And if you know if if you're a sighted person, you'll see it. But if you use Braille R, it kind of intercepts. You know, the way our the way R will let you do that. It lets you intercept some of the the object dispatch, and when that plot method gets called, it will actually not only visually show it on the graphics display, which obviously you won't be able to see if you're blind, but it will then describe the histogram. And what's great about that is, you know, if you're using something like an actual like the the base R app on systems, because uh, our studio actually does not support screen readers, which is interesting. I didn't know that until I read the paper. Um, you know, you can have it, the screen reader can actually read through that text so if you can make it audible um, or it can actually go out to a, a, a braille environment, I guess, as well, too. But then you get a description of what that the histogram is and the, it supports other plots, too, and it's going to support more as time goes by. But that made me think that, you know, it, it may be an interesting exercise to at least if you can't describe a plot that you've just made so that a blind person could understand it of what you're trying to communicate. And maybe it's obviously it's not going to work for every type of visualization, but I think for some of the core ones that we try to communicate with almost every day, uh, that's not, that might not be a bad exercise for us to actually go through, you know, as, as we're all kind of making charts and graphs and stuff for people is to try to ensure that, you know, you can decode that in a way that folks will see it in, in a pretty systematic way, almost, almost kind of like a reverse tableau, if you will. Uh, for for the, for the actual chart, so right. yeah, just watch for that package. Watch for the there's going to be a paper coming out as well once once user kicks off. So I I, I think people would be um, would be pretty interested in seeing how that comes out. So I want to add on to your Anscombe's Quartet uh, discussion real quick, and it's something actually that Brandon called out in his blog post, and that is uh, talking about the the brain's ability, our our ability as people to absorb things visually. You know, they say a, a picture is worth a thousand words, and that's because uh, our brain is so capable of absorbing things visually. And in our book, we start out chapter six with a quote, and I want to read that quote. I have it right here. And it's a quote from Colin Ware, 
who wrote a book called uh, Information Visualization. And he's probably one of the, the leading uh, researchers into this cognitive, uh, visual cognitive ability. And he has, uh, actually, it's almost very little to do with visualization, all about the cognitive processing of the brain and things like that. And you can tell as, as reading Colin Ware's book that he was also a huge influence on Stephen Few. Uh, it's interesting seeing, you know, you read some part of that book and you're like, oh, that's where Few got that, right? So, but the quote here says, the human visual system is a pattern seeker of enormous power and subtlety. The eye and the visual cortex of the brain form a massively parallel processor that provides the highest bandwidth channel into the human cognitive centers. And I think that that's, that really just captures it, saying that the best way to really shove information into the brain, if we can talk about that, is visually. And I think that that's, that's a really strong statement. I think that provides a great segue into our segment with Brandon Dixon of Passive Total. Uh, Brandon has a passion for security research and developing tools and services that can help researchers and defenders. So let's start off with what got Brandon into information security. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started information security uh, in high school. I went through a specialized networking program uh, and started going to college classes at night. Um, you know, I got kind of lucky with, with my career because information security at the time was starting to blow up. Uh, a lot of the certifications coming out, a lot of, you know, hacking-based courses were, were of interest to many people. Uh, so after I graduated high school, um, my first job was with a defense contractor where I got to do a lot of networking things, but also got exposed to a lot of information security, trying to automate aspects of, that, of my job. So I was doing a little bit of research, a little bit of programming. Uh, after that, I did more consulting, and I did consulting for, for a few years. And that, that kind of gave me the opportunity to, to see a bunch of different things, figure out what I liked, figure out what I didn't like. Uh, and it was in that position where I kind of found that, you know, research and development was something that I was interested in in the security space. So from there, uh, I went over to a university, did more research and more development. Um, and now I've been in the private sector where I've continued to, to kind of develop tools, mostly focusing uh, on the analysts. And so uh, that's a good transition then into Passive Total. So what, what is Passive Total? What does the platform aim to do? So Passive Total is largely built off a combination of active and passive DNS data. Uh, you can think of that data as kind of a snapshot of network infrastructure at any given period of time. So for example, um, if I try to resolve google.com uh, today, it may go over to 8.8.8.8. .8 um, and if I went and tried to resolve that tomorrow, it could go to 4.4.4.4. .4 .4 .4. uh, so this kind of works both ways. If, if I queried for 4.4.4.4, I might see that it resolves to dns.google.com. So what's interesting with with the, all this data is like, you know, if you're doing an investigation on your network, you have something that's potentially suspicious. It's helpful to know, okay, what is the, what did this suspicious item resolve to at the time that I think my network may have been compromised or, you know, what, what is its entire like duration? What's its history? Um, and essentially what passive total is, is it's a platform that combines a bunch of different passive DNS sources 
and distills them into one unified view. But beyond that, beyond just showing that data, we also give the analysts the necessary enrichment data that helps them come to a conclusion as to whether or not something is malicious or not. Um, and what's nice about that is like we also allow the analysts to persist uh, aspects of their research inside of the platform. So, you know, if I, if I say this domain is malicious, you know, several months from now when I'm, I'm pivoting around and looking at different, uh, different infrastructure, that domain may pop up again. Um, and I'll know that it's malicious because I had previously marked it. Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and I'm, I'm just happy that it, that's not yet another threat asterisk company. It could be. <laughs> no, but just, just don't just don't use that. And there's far too many threats out there. The, the, I think totals are way better than threats, so that's cool. <laughs> Threat total. There you go. Oh, oh, no, don't. No, no. See, now what's going to happen next week, there's going to be like three new startups fighting for that. Thanks. That's so, well, we thought about going meta and doing total total, but... Uh... <laughs> so, so we have you on because you recently, I think it was even just this past week from when we're recording did a pretty cool blog post that had a really interesting data visualization for a really interesting reason. And, and I really would like to have you share with folks what, what that was, um, how you came to do it, et cetera. So like, you know, can, can you start talking a little bit about, you know, that blog post and the visualization that you developed? Yeah. Um, so the blog post outlined a new, one of our new features inside of passive total where we take all of that combined passive DNS data um, and we plot it into various points on a grid. So the x-axis represents the previous six months of, of time, and the y-axis represents the individual days of the week, uh, starting with Sunday. So each square inside of the grid is filled with an amount of unique resolution, so there's a, a tiny count inside of each square, um, as well as like a color that kind of signifies properties depending on what you queried for. So if I queried for a domain, the, the grid will be filled with IP-based data, um, and those properties might be whether or not the IP was a routable address or a non-routable address. If I queried for a domain, uh, I'm sorry, if I queried for an IP address and it was filled with domains, the properties there uh, might be you know, whether or not the domain is dynamic or whether or not it's a you know, purchase domain from a registrar. So what, what were you doing before? that you, you needed this visualization? What was it like before that you, you did this new visualization? So essentially before we had this, and, and it's still there now, um, it was an HTML table. So a lot, of what, a, a lot of what analysts are used to in the community is, you know, you get back a lot of data and you put it inside of a table and you can sort it and, and kind of pivot around. Uh, and, and that's primarily what we were doing. We were taking all of those combined results and, and having each of them inside of an individual row. Users could sort on various details. It was very difficult to interpret all of the data. In some cases, it was like five records, so it's fairly easy to, to digest. But in other cases, when you have thousands of records across multiple years, it's very difficult to see where there's unique occurrences of data or there's overlap between you know, different pieces of infrastructure. Yeah. And so that's what you're trying to solve is the, you know, when you're looking at, at more than just a handful, you know, pieces of data that you wanted some way to quickly absorb that information, right? Yeah, I, I, wanted, I wanted a way to know whether or not something was useful in a split second. 
without me having to actually go through the detailed data, I wanted some sort of like indication that like what I'm looking at is old or what I'm looking at is highly active uh, or what I'm looking at hasn't resolved to a routable address in, in the past six months. Something that could give me that, that cue that, that said, okay, I, this is something that's interesting. I want to spend more time looking at it. So, so you reference um, an MIT article in your blog post um, when you're talking about the visualization, and I'm wondering, did did you did you immediately go towards the heat map, or was that sort of an iterative process? Like, did you try other types of visuals before you settled on that for how you wanted to kind of get that faster way of identifying things that are bad? So the heat, like, what was interesting about the visual decision um, is that you know I had. I had read studies like that, and I had seen other things, but the heat map was not the first. Uh, the first thing that we went to it was actually a timeline. So this data naturally fits inside of a timeline, or it's just time-based in general. So the first iteration that we had of this in in the, the first version of Passive Total was uh, a, a timeline that would essentially it was the same concept as our heat map. Um, it would it would plot the varying you know uh, IP addresses onto a long timeline that was a JavaScript library, and you could kind of drag across, and you could see where there were overlapping lines, but it was, it was very difficult to, to digest that data, despite it being the proper way to show it. Cool. And actually, that, that, that's a great segue. So um, it, it looks like, you know, obviously, since it's on a web page, it's, it's probably not Java or Flash. It's, it looks like it's JavaScript. I didn't actually dig into it. Um, which, which libraries did you kind of center around, or were you familiar with the Jews, or did you have to look at new ones that you had, or did you build it from scratch, like on your own completely? So the first, the first iteration of the heat map um, was actually using a JavaScript library that, uh, that plotted like uh, calendars and, and things like that. And uh, as I went, you know, as I started to use it, I realized that it wasn't necessarily built for what we were trying to do. So there's a lot of heavy modification to it uh, to to kind of force it into what you know what we were trying to represent in terms of like the colors and and you know the different the different points and the borders around the boxes, etc. Uh, so after trying to to get that to work, I realized that we would just have to roll our own solution. What we have in place right now is actually not. JavaScript at all. Um, it's a server-side generated HTML table, um, and I, I do. The irony is not lost on me that you know we've replaced one one table for another, but in this case, we actually have something that represents the actual heat map. In the future, we'd like to port that over to using something that's more Canvas-based, maybe using a D3JS. Okay. And is this so? This is generated real time. Like the user will make a query, and then it's generated on the server, and it's returned back to the user. Correct. So the the heat maps are generated on the fly every time you run a query. So it's it's as real time as you can get. Um, with our data, there's a lot of you know things change quickly. So we're all, we're constantly trying to make sure that we have the most updated data. But beyond that each individual inside of the platform may have access to different sources. So that adds a layer of complexity in that we can't merely show the same heat map every single time. We have to show differing heat maps based on the sources you're allowed to see. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And have people been using this already? Is it already rolled out that people can, can try out the heat map? Yeah. Um, so we, 
we had rolled this out when we did a, a beta rewrite um, several months ago. Uh, the initial feedback was, you know, not many people liked it. They thought it was, you know, taking up a lot of, of real estate on the screen. Uh, you know, it was slow at times. So since pushing out the new version of Passive Total, we've included the heat map. We've had it rewritten. It renders faster. Um, and we think that by doing that blog post, we kind of explain what it is that we're trying to achieve. You know, we, we kind of expected people to, to kind of hate it just because it's it's 100% new as far as I'm as far as I know nobody has ever like taken data like this and represented it inside of a visual like this so it's natural that people would say this is ridiculous what are you doing but you know we feel there's value in it um, we use it a lot and I know other people are starting to come around to it yeah so did you have that ramp up period yourself like as you started using it was there an initial period where it just kind of took you a little bit, but now that you know how to read it, you understand the, the different variables that are represented, that you can look at it and absorb that information rather rapidly now, right? Yeah, I, I think what makes visuals difficult is that not only do they have to be pleasing aesthetically, they have to, to be simple enough to understand almost intuitively. Uh, and with our heat map, it's you know, one of the pitfalls to it is that it's not quite as intuitive as we'd want. Uh, you know, when people see that, it's it's kind of jarring at first because, you know, it's like, what is this? What is this map? What does it correspond to? So even for us, like the people who created it, um, you know, when I initially saw that all the time, I'm like, uh, this isn't this isn't that great. But as I forced myself to look at it more, I realized I'm like, okay, if I see a blank grid, that means that there is no data for the past six months instantly. Uh, and if I see like a giant blue grid and I'm looking, you know, if I've queried for a domain, I instantly know that like this thing is resolving to non-routable addresses or I see like, you know, that one square inside of the heat map is being like a different color than everything else. My brain instantly tells me that day is interesting. What happened that day? All right. Yeah. Now you, your background is in networking and security, mainly security. How did you have you evolved much into the visualization world and data analysis and stuff like that? Are you still, like, how did you how did you get into doing viz from security? So I've, I've always had an interest in the arts. Um, so you know I I like art outside of out of work in general. Um, and in my earlier research, I had used some visual libraries in order to represent um, malicious PDF objects. Uh, specifically, we were looking at entropy and, and trying to compare different objects inside of a PDF. So I, I found that, that visuals were helpful in that, and it, that kind of never left me. But I think what sort of revived my interest in visualization and, and made me spend a lot more time with it was a, a TED Talk that I saw. And it was, um, let's see, I think it was Neil Havison. And the talk was... Uh, the talk was like listening in color. And what I found interesting about the talk was that it was a colorblind artist who essentially had a, a color sensor installed and in, like mounted into the back of his skull. Uh, and it, it basically has like a, you know, uh, a camera on the front of his head. And what it's capable of doing is translating, uh, translating that color into frequencies that then play inside of his head. So it's not quite it's not quite a visualization, but when I heard that talk, I I instantly realized like you know one of the things that was cool is that 
he said, you know, to see someone's face, it was no longer just like what their face looked like. It was also like, were they were they pleasing to the ears because of the you know the the color and the the complexion that they had? And what I thought was interesting about that was, as I heard that, I I thought to myself first, could we could we take the data that we're representing and represent it as as a sound? Um, that was the first iteration of that. And then I thought, well, let's be more realistic here. Like is it possible to distill all of this information inside of some visual that is easy to understand and is a complete different way of viewing something? So, you know, having done this and, and kind of experimented with, with your, you know, the people that use you know, Passive Total, um, I, I guess what, what advice might you give to others who are, you know, maybe either using your stuff or you know, kind of sitting in an enterprise or an organization and trying to sift through, you know, tons of data about kind of trying to do more visually than than they might be like you know what what advice can you give to them to 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 do more visualizations or or try try to use them for their analyses so i mean my, my advice is i guess limited in a way because i don't really view myself as an expert at all like you know one of the things that i've started doing recently is reading more books on design so uh the design of everyday things by uh don norman is an incredibly simple book, but at the same time, very complex, and it makes you view the world a bit differently. So I think that translates very well to to the, the, the cyber world, and you know, reading any sort of like user experience books, you know, asking people for feedback and trying to approach things as if like you know nothing about this topic. So my my advice when it comes to visualizations is is to experiment, to figure out what works to to basically fail fast like if you know don't try to like force people into a visualization if it's not going to work don't try to put too much data inside of a visualization but at least try something uh you know rearrange things plot different pieces of data you know really think about the questions that you're trying to answer what you're trying to do and do you um do you have any other plans that that you can talk about because you know like it it is a, it is a service you offer a paying service, uh for other visualization projects for Passive Total like is is this the is this the end of visualization experimentation or are you going to be doing a, a bit more around around the service? No, I I definitely like to continue to do more. I think uh you know there's a the free element of the service like allows us to kind of run these different experiments, um and what's nice is you know we're we're looking to basically take the existing heat map and add a couple more features to it. So right now when you hover over a day, you can see the unique resolutions that occurred on that day. And additionally, there's a there's a, a visual cue that tells you, hey, something new, never before seen, occurred on this day. What we'd like to have is the ability to get that value um, and show it to the user. But beyond that, allow them to click on an individual day and see and like filter out all of the results to just that day. Um, to get so that you can take that giant table that's below the heat map and get a very small condensed version. Uh, and in a perfect world, you'd be able to shift click and you know get an entire week or get a get a custom period of time. Moving beyond that, I, I think the next logical step is to take that heat map concept and allow individuals to plot multiple values on it. So now you can see the overlap between two different domains, three different domains, um, and begin to understand like where's the sharing between you know different infrastructures or or patterns of when they you know go routable to non-routable and so on. 
Well, Brandon Dixon, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it.